Welcome back to the AIAC podcast. My name is William Shoki, and you are listening to this, which is Africa's a country's regular destination for analysis of current events, culture, and sports on the African continent and its diaspora from the left. This week, we're going to be talking about AFCON. Last week, the Confederation of African Football, aka CAF, announced the host for the 2025 and 2027 African Cup of Nations, respectively. Morocco won the right to host a 2025 tournament, while the triumvirate of Tanzania, Kenya, and Uganda will host the 2027 edition. Full disclosure, I'm very excited about that. My parents are from Tanzania, so it's very exciting to see East Africa finally get the chance to host this important competition. Meanwhile, the 2023 edition of the biennial competition was originally meant to happen in June, July of this year in Cote d'Ivoire, but was postponed to January of 2024 to avoid adverse weather conditions brought on by the host nation's rainy season. This was an unpopular decision in some quarters, especially in Europe's top five leagues, which have long complained about key African players being unavailable at a pivotal stage of the football season. Last week, for example, the footballing world was left puzzled when Italian club Napoli uploaded videos to TikTok marking their star Nigerian striker Victor Osimhen. Speculations for why this happened ran wild, and tellingly, one popular version of what might have happened was that Napoli's president, Aurelio Di Laurentiis, was trying to force Osimhen out of the club due to his expected absence for AFCON duty in January and February. As you might recall, Osimhen missed out on the 2021 tournament, and he doesn't want to miss this one. The Super Eagles are strong favorites for next year's contest. Also recall that in 2022, De Laurentiis controversially said that Napoli wouldn't sign African players unless they backed out of AFCON. So joining us on the podcast today to discuss the politics and spectacle of AFCON is football journalist Maher Mazahi. What can we expect from the tournament in 2024? And what political motives are behind the successful 2025 and 2027 bids, especially with Morocco outbidding Algeria, with both countries increasingly resorting to sports diplomacy in their geopolitical rivalry? And despite the constant consternation from Europe, why is AFCON a tournament that African players treasure above all? Maher Mazahi is an independent football journalist based in Algiers. He covers North African football extensively, and his work has been published in the international media, including the BBC, The Guardian, The Telegraph, ESPN, FC, as well as Al Jazeera English. Before you listen to the conversation with Maher, make sure that you subscribe to the AIAC podcast wherever you listen to your podcasts, and be sure to check out clips on YouTube. So here it is, my conversation with Maher. Enjoy. Maher, thank you for joining today. I think the first thing I want to chat to you about is this Victor Osimhen situation at Napoli, which I was pretty shocked to see. You know, what on earth do you think is happening there? It's a complicated one. Uh, Victor Osimhen is probably the best striker on the African continent over the last 18 months or so. Uh, he's up for the Ballon d'Or. Uh, he is the first player really to lead Napoli uh, to a Scudetto, a Serie A title, since the late great Diego Armando Maradona did it in the, in the late 80s, early 90s. Um, and so he was always seen as a cult hero in Napoli. And Napoli, as, as you know, everybody knows, is one of the more working class cities in Italy and it, with a long history of migration and immigration. And so 
I thought it was honestly like a natural fit for when Osimen went there and did the things that he did last season. And last week, uh, for some reason, we still don't understand it. It's literally incomprehensible. Napoli's own social media team put out a video on TikTok of Victor Osimen protesting for a penalty kick, subsequently being awarded that penalty kick, and then him missing the penalty kick. And they were making fun of him, sort of. Not only that, there was another video where they were calling him a coconut, which, I mean, had pretty weird racial under undertones as well. And immediately, the player uh, was angry, seemed to manifest that anger by removing some of his uh, links to the club, things like, you know, even like pictures of him wearing the Napoli shirt he took off, you know, in his bio saying that he was no longer a Napoli player, pretty much. Uh, and still, the, the video, I think, on TikTok wasn't deleted until 24 hours after. So it was a completely bizarre, puzzling thing for a club to do is to make fun of its own player and in a very, very insulting and demeaning way. Um, what's interesting now is, is we want to know, did the club sort of have any knowledge of this or do they outsource all of their social media content like many big clubs do nowadays? If they do outsource that content, you would expect the club to take swift and very meaningful uh, action against this company, whether it could even be legal action. Yeah. <clears throat> but it, what I'd like to know is like, why did it take, why did they put out this content? Why did it take so long for them to delete it? And what are the links between the club and their social media team? Now, some people in Italy, some journalists are saying that, yes, this was wrong, completely wrong. I think everybody's unanimous in agreeing to that. But then a lot of people are asking, is Victor Osimen's team, particularly his Italian agent, using this to force a way out of Napoli? Because over the summer, there was links to him with Manchester United and, and many different clubs. And, and people thought that, you know, Osimen was ready and willing to leave. But that offer, that 150 million euro offer never really came in because his valuation is so high. Um, so people are maybe saying, saying, yes, this was wrong, but maybe the team is instrumentalizing, his representation team is instrumentalizing this to force a way out of Napoli. So it's a, it's a very weird, interesting saga, and it's going to be weird to see how, how it all unfolds. Yeah, for me, the, the, the craziest theory that I've seen, and I don't know how much credibility there is to this, is that the Napoli president, Aurelio Di Laurentiis, at some point, there's sort of footage of him saying he'll never sign an African player because of this sort of well-rehearsed complaint by a lot of European footballing elite that African players are, are troublesome because in the middle of the season, they all go play for, for, their, for their teams at AFCON. And the last time AFCON happened, Victor Osimhen wasn't available yep. for selection because he was injured. Um, I mean, he was signed anyway. And I mean, apparently, this the one theory that I've seen is that uh, De Laurentiis is trying to force Osimhen out before AFCON because he knows that he's going to be unavailable and that's going to be a thorn in Napoli's side. And he'd rather push him out now with the knowledge that he can cash in on a major transfer fee because I think he's kind of currently valued at like 100 million euros. Yeah, I, I don't know if you've heard that theory and, and what you think of it. I, I hesitate a little bit because De Laurentiis, from, from experience, from previous transfer windows, he's not somebody I think that's very hasty uh, with selling his players. He likes to hold on to them and he likes to sell them for a lot of money. And I would think that 
he would have, if he really wanted to get rid of Osimhen prior to the January Cup of Nations, he should have did it in the summer where his valuation was a little bit higher. They were fresh off that title win. Um, and Osimhen's form has kind of dipped a little bit coming into the season. Uh, the coach that they brought in, Rudy Garcia, is not really uh, playing that brand of attacking football that they were playing under Spalletti uh, last season. So I think, I mean, if he were going to sell him, I think he would prefer to sell him in, in the summer. And I think this is probably not the right way to do this because everybody knows that the player is discontent now and that perhaps he's going to cause trouble for Napoli. And so I think that takes that really hits his price. So I don't think it's the smartest financial business idea for him to go about it this way. But you're right to, to point to his comments at the AFCON. Osimhen broke his nose, and that's why he wears a mask now. He's been wearing it for about a year now because he broke his nose just weeks leading up to the AFCON. And what was interesting was that many different diagnostics, diagnoses from the government, from sorry, from doctors, team doctors and others, said that he could be ready in time playing with the mask. And I believe he actually played a match for Napoli prior to Nigeria playing a match at the AFCON. So he was back pretty much. He could have played a role in the AFCON, if not at the in the first group stages, perhaps yeah. later in the knockout stages. But for one reason or another, with his team with Nigeria, they decided to, to, to skip the AFCON. And everybody's waiting for Victor Osman to play in the Ivory Coast. He's one of the continent stars now. And I really don't think that Napoli are going to be able to do anything to sort of pressure him to not play with the Super Eagles. He as long as Frank, as well as Frank Kessier, his Cameroonian teammate, are going to be two of the big stars uh, in six months, or not even four months' time now. Yeah, I think this is a this is a great opportunity to. I mean, I wonder how much more to say about this awesome situation. I guess it makes more sense to rather than speculate, just see what comes out in the coming days. But yeah, I think this is a good transition point to talk about Afghan next year. It's being hosted in in Abidjan primarily, while well, in, in in the Ivory Coast. Um, and it's set to be a, a really exciting and uh, tournament. What's your, yeah? What's your sense of of what to expect from from this tournament? I mean, let's maybe first talk a little bit about how the hosts were selected, um, who else was in the running, what they're hoping to bring to to Afghan uh, in 2024, um, and and what we can expect from this tournament. Yeah, I mean, Ivory Coast were selected. Uh a few years back now, I believe it was before around the 2017 tournament. And it was, um, they were gave three tournaments in a row. So 2019 was supposed to be Cameroon. 2021 was supposed to be Ivory Coast. And then 2023 was supposed to be Guinea. And that was all sort of moved back uh, initially because um, Egypt really were seen as like, uh, the Ivory Coast weren't seen as ready for 2019. So Egypt came in and they replaced them. And then they just, or sorry, for their, Egypt replaced Cameroon in 2019 and every, everything got pushed back two years and now COVID came and that also pushed it back one year, which is why we're playing the 2023 Cup of Nations in 2024. It's going to be interesting to see if CAF actually rebrands and just names it 2024, but for the moment, they're still going ahead, uh, playing their competitions one year late. Um, but it's, it, I think it should be a better tournament than the previous Cameroon one because of the COVID circumstances. Um, Omicron just sort of emerged that, that that strain of that highly contagious strain of the COVID virus emerged as the previous AFCON was getting away in Cameroon. And I don't know if you recall, but teams were reluctant to let their players go until sometimes, you know, a few days before the tournament started. And as a result, you know, with the travel restrictions and the, the you know, extreme uh, isolation, 
teams weren't really able to prepare correctly. And, and so the first round of the AFCON in Cameroon was very slow. There were very low scoring, a lot of 0-0 matches, 1-1 matches. And as the tournament progressed, we started to see better and better football. Hopefully this time around, teams are going to let their players go a little bit earlier. And I think we're going to see uh, better football in that respect. But the Ivory Coast seems to be prepared. There's just one big problem is that their stadium in Ibempe, which is uh, a suburb of Abidjan, uh, has saw some pretty major flooding about a month ago. <laughs> uh, they were playing a match, uh, just a regular uh, friendly match, I believe. And as it rained, as you know, it's the wet season in the Ivory Coast at the current moment, which is why we play in the winter just players sloshing around and they tried to drain it, but it didn't really work correctly. So they're going to have to make sure they get that um, figured out. And I, I do think they will. But other than that, it should be a pretty good tournament. So there's going to be matches in Abidjan, Boaké, Yamusokro, San Pedro. Uh, and I believe that's about it. So, yeah, it's going to be a good tournament. It's interesting because, I mean, I want to talk about the tournament itself, but just thinking about AFCON, its timing, all of these postponements that you've highlighted, we're, we're now in a very kind of, I mean, first of all, there was a decision taken a few years back to make AFCON a biennial tournament, so every two years. And the trouble of doing it every two years as we're experiencing now is that when unforeseen externalities like a global pandemic intervene, yeah. you don't really have much wiggle room to reschedule and postpone. So... 2023 African Cup of Nations being postponed to 2024 is awkward because there's an AFCON set to take place in 2025. Do you think that's going to have a bearing in terms of how teams approach this tournament? Um, is, is CAF still committed to hosting the 2025 African Cup of Nations, which is set to take place in Morocco? What does that do to sort of, I don't know, the, the thing about these tournaments is that they, they kind of, they, they owe a lot of their prestige and grandeur to their sense of rarity, that they're things that only happen once in a blue moon, mm. used to that rhythm. But now the entire rhythm of AFCON has been completely disrupted and turned upside <laughs> down. I'm wondering if that's going to affect people's attitudes towards the tournament itself and the football that's on display. Yeah, two main criticisms against AFCON. First of all, why is it every two years? And the second one, why does it take place in the winter? I mean, those are, especially from Europe, like the European clubs in particular hate this tournament. And there's, it's actually very interesting because I was recent, very recently uh, reading a lot about the first edition of the AFCON, which took place uh, in 1957 in Sudan. And at the time, there were only four nations in, in CAF. There was South Africa, which wanted to put in an all-white team, and they were subsequently banned from CAF. And then you had Egypt, Ethiopia, and Sudan. In 1956, Egypt nationalized the Suez Canal. And as a result, they were attacked by England, France, and Israel. Uh, and this was a, eventually a victory because the United States and Russia told those three countries to back off, and eventually Egypt does nationalize the Suez Canal. But at the same time, it was a debilitating attack by those three powers. And Egypt is on its knees. And this happens just a few months before the first version of the AFCON. And if Egypt pulls out there, you only have two countries, Sudan and Ethiopia. And do you really have a tournament? And everybody was waiting for Egypt's go ahead. And Egypt says, no, let's go and play this tournament. And what it does is it really sets a tone and it sets a spirit of resilience in this tournament that I think actually has flown 
on until this present day. Uh, I recently spoke to uh, one of the administrators at CAF about the 2015 tournament in Equatorial Guinea. That tournament was to take, supposed to take place in Morocco. The Ebola crisis hits. Ebola crisis hits. Morocco says, you know what, for our sanitation purposes, we don't want to host this tournament anymore. Let's postpone it. CAF says, no, we're not postponing. We're going ahead. They give it to Equatorial Guinea. Just a few, again, maybe one or two months before the tournament is actually supposed to be played. They fly in a pitch on an airplane three weeks ahead of this tournament to this remote city of Mongomo in Central Africa. <laughs> this is a small country, for, even for Equatorial Guinea's uh, standards. And you have CAF officials flocking to Mongomo. CAF officials, which usually, you know, sleep in five-star hotels and have their own bed and, you know, they have very generous and hefty per diems, all of a sudden are flocking to Mongomo with no hotel infrastructure, sharing apartment rooms, sleeping on the floor. And what it does is it shows you, like, yeah, there's a lot of, you know, negatives about African football. But what I do think the African Cup of Nations does is that it pulls out the resilience in, that exists in all of us all across the continent. And it really, like... No matter what happens, no matter what the European clubs say, no matter we're playing this tournament, usually in the winter, every two years, and it's going to happen because it's our tournament and we love it and it means a lot to us. And so I think that's that's really something that, again, a lot of European clubs fail to understand, but I think it's something that we all feel inside of us. And the fact, despite the fact that it's, you know, it's riddled with problems and it had, does happen every two years, I think the, when you see the enthusiasm that the fans have for this tournament, you, you understand it. Yeah, no, I think I think you've put it really eloquently. There's there's that kind of spirit of resilience, but also that spirit of defiance, as you say, of yeah. African teams wanting to play football on their own terms and and really just have a tournament which, as much as it does aspire to a global audience, is primarily for Africans first. You know, this is our celebration. It's ours, yeah. That's exactly. the key word. Exactly. Um, and this seems to be something that translates to to the players as well, um, because I think you see time and time again, you know, players who are playing at elite European football clubs putting Afcon first. Um, I'm curious, something I'd only thought about like a week ago is with a lot of African football players migrating to you know the Saudi Pro yeah. League. Is this going to affect their calculations playing there? What is what is the attitude of Saudi clubs to losing their players in, in the middle of the season? Especially considering the fact that that's a league driven primarily by star talent. So if you're missing your Sadio Mane, if you're missing your Riyad Mahrez, there's, there's very little to draw all of the crowds to, to the stadiums, to draw the interest because that's the main sell these days. So how do you think they're going to react to it? Honestly, Will, I think this was, I think, not the main reason, but one of the reasons why a lot of African talent did end up moving to the Middle to, to the Middle East and especially Saudi Arabia is because the Saudi League will take a break between January and February, which is like 80% or 90% of the AFCON. And all of a sudden, Riyad Mahrez, you know, who's saying, yeah, look, I've spent, I've made so much efforts trying to establish myself at Manchester City. There's so much competition. There's Bernardo Silva and Phil Foden behind me. As soon as I feel like I'm getting my bearings about me, I'm going to AFCON for a month and a half. And then all of a sudden, when I come back there in form and I have to work my way back in again, that's so difficult for players, you know, like Mane, like Mares. But the fact that they've gone to Saudi Arabia, that's actually facilitated so many things for them because they also have the Asian Cup at the same time the African Cup is being played and the leagues take a break. And as a result, I mean, that's it's, it's really godsend for those talents. So they don't have to fight their clubs about it anymore. And that's 
it's, again, it's not the main reason why they went out there. I think the main reason everybody knows is financial. But I do think 10 to 20% of that decision was affected by the fact that Saudi Arabia does have a break between January and February. Well, the European League just kind of acknowledged that AFCON is, is an important tournament to African players, that they would prefer not to play without those players, but they're not going to be able to convince those players to skip the tournament. So it's perhaps worth thinking about top five league scheduling such that you avoid losing your players during AFCON and then maybe the league takes a break and sort of other leagues are, are structured around that. I mean, that would have to involve a consideration of a lot of factors. Um, but I wonder if, if that might be on the horizon, just because this is a, especially with the tournament happening biennially, this is a constant bugbear of European clubs. And, you know, rather than endlessly whining about it, I wonder if they might think of ways to, to be uh, accommodating. Yeah, uh Honestly, Will, I think in modern football, we're moving towards the other direction. When you look at the amount of matches that a, a player plays now compared to 30 years ago, you know, back then, maybe, maybe they're playing 40 matches per season, you know, when you add in league and cup. Nowadays, they're, they're upwards of 60, 70 when you add in, you know, things like the FIFA Club World Cup and then the AFCON and then the, the two league, uh, the two cup competitions and then the Premier League. But the main culprit is the Premier League because they don't take a break over the winter. You know, even like, you know, Germany, they'll, they'll take their Christmas break. France will take their, their winter break as well. But the Premier League is the, the league that doesn't take a winter break. And on the contrary, I think they 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 love that Boxing Day, you know, yeah. uh, atmosphere. And, and they really sell it very well. Um, so I, I really don't think that they're ever going to institute a winter break themselves. The question then becomes, will they get used to Af African players playing in AFCON? And what I, <laughs> what I see, what I observe is that I think the very top clubs like Manchester City and Arsenal, for example, that the clubs with the most forward-thinking managers are actually moving away from African players. I think you're seeing less and less African players at those clubs, which were traditionally, especially Arsenal, you know, full of African players. Um, and so I, I would actually say it's the opposite is happening at the very highest level. Unfortunately, what's going to happen is that the price tags of these African players are never going to be as high as those of European players or, or Brazilian players. Right. Um, and it's going to get to a point where it's just going to even itself out. Okay, yes, he's gone for a month, but look, he's so much cheaper than this player. And as a result, let's let's it's worth a gamble or it's worth a bargain. I think, unfortunately, that's where we're going to end up is that the African player is going to be cheaper than the, the South American player. But it's already the case, but it's, it's going to continue to be so as long as the AFCON is played in the winter. But I, like I said, uh, I, I don't care. <laughs> I, I really don't. Because like, yeah, it's, it, it's not the greatest thing for those star players, but those star players are gaining so much popularity at home they're getting endorsements at home they're gaining popularity and fame at home they're getting opportunities at home back in the day and that eventually balances itself out as well yeah exactly exactly so speaking of the tournament itself i mean circling back to this you know 2024 there's going to be an afghan and then 2025 there's going to be another afghan um and then 2027 is the next one which is going to be hosted primarily um in East Africa between Kenya, Uganda, and Tanzania. I'm I'm curious to know how how are these how are hosting rights awarded? I mean, earlier we had a conversation about how the process itself can be a little bit haphazard and chaotic, yeah. just given the the nature of the continent um, and a lot of the unforeseen challenges that 
come up. But these 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 countries that have been selected to host Afcon over the next five years has has there been any kind of discernible motivation around it? Did they just put in the best bids? Is there some political undertones? What's what's going on around there? So the Confederation of African Football, I believe, has 54 member associations or FAs. So each country that's a member will have an FA, the Algerian FA, the Tanzanian FA, the Egyptian FA, and so on and so forth. Within that general assembly of FAs, where each one has one vote, you have what's called an executive committee. And so you'll have 22 members of the executive committee. And these are uh, presidents of these FAs that are then... Uh, assigned to different committees, the finance committee, and they make up the executive committee. And they're the ones that vote on, uh, there's vice presidents, for example, they're also part of the executive committee. There's a president, he's part of the executive committee. And they're the ones that vote on hosting rights, actually. And so a more democratic, perhaps, and and I think a a better idea would perhaps be to, to delegate the voting rights to the entire General Assembly of 54 countries instead of the hands of the 22 exco members. But what's happened is these exco members, uh, there's a lot of lobbying, there's a lot of uh, interest, political interest, sociopolitical interest, and, and you have different cliques that form, you know. Mm. Uh, so mm. the executive committee under Issa Hayatu, the former Cameroonian president of the Confederation of African Football is very, very different to the executive committee uh, that currently exists today. And there's different power struggles that take place. And so, for example, um, for the 2025 AFCON, which has been hosted by, which is being hosted by Morocco, for me, it's a logical appointment because Morocco for the last decade or so has invested very heavily in sports diplomacy. And when you look at what they've, I don't want to say given CAF, but the way in which they've helped CAF over the last decade it's huge. They've hosted uh, a symposium. They've hosted uh, several CAF Champions League finals, a Confederation Cup final, a Women's Champions League final. Uh, they've hosted uh, two chance. Club, everything. everything. That Club World Cup is FIFA, but they've really invested a lot in sports diplomacy in general. And so for me, it's kind of logical that when you invest that much over the last decade or so, uh, CAF sort of rewards you by giving you the, the African Cup of Nations. And the African Cup of Nations is a reward because there's so much prestige involved, really. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and as a result, so Morocco really, for me, it's a logical appointment. But what you had was you had Algeria sort of trying to also increase its sports diplomacy to try and compete with Morocco. Because since 2021, these two countries have been at each other's throats. They've cut off uh, diplomatic relations. And this is a very old and long rivalry. Um, but what Algeria has done is they've invested heavily in their sports infrastructure. They built three or four new stadiums. They also tried to host the CAF uh, U17 Africa Cup of Nations as well as the CHAN uh, this year. And so they've really done a lot and they thought that they could really compete with Morocco. But what they realized is that as long as you don't have a seat on the EXCO and you don't have power in the executive committee, you can't really make uh, those kinds of strides. And so the, Mor- the Moroccan influence in the executive committee is ultimately what ended up uh, winning them the hosting rights in 2025. But it was a fascinating enterprise to see how these states use sports diplomacy to try and gain influence on the African continent. Mm. And you think that's yeah. that's, that's the precedent? Um, Sorry? Do no, I'm saying, do you think that's the precedent that they're setting? Um, that sports diplomacy and, you know, greenwashing in some cases increasingly become foreign policy tools which countries either use to shore up their international image or to outcompete their political rivals because 
it's it's a it's difficult on the one hand because it requires so much capital investment um as yeah. you've been describing um so it's it's hard to see what the payoff might be but clearly countries are putting a lot of stock on the ability for sports to, to project a, an image of of confidence um and prestige on the international arena for them uh, especially in the we see that especially in the middle east these days but yeah in in the northwestern corner of africa that's definitely definitely been the case and like you say i think at a certain point citizens might ask you know is this worth it you know like this like you say this is a, these are huge investments you know that we're making uh this could be going to you know building healthcare infrastructure this could be going to building you know roads uh, uh these regions especially these two countries are very highly water stressed at the moment you know maybe desalination plants maybe other kinds of technology uh sustainable green technology the, to help collect water and and perhaps reduce waste but yeah i i do it it's it's a very important question i think that we could probably spend a whole entire podcast on is is the sports diplomacy does it affect other kinds of diplomacy as well like this for example is morocco's huge sports influence does it affect um and i think this is probably the central point in issue is does it affect their diplomacy when it comes to the western sahara and it's the same similar with algeria because those those two countries they really see i think africa uh i, I think they both feel very african themselves mm. uh, contrary to, to some of the things you read online i really do think that it's they really do feel African and they, they want to invest in Africa and they want to make sure that the entire continent grows. But I do think when they, for the way they view the continent as opposed to one another is very, very much along that, that, that issue itself. And so I think they're using sort of sport as a tool to fight that battle on the continent at the moment. Um, and, and yeah, but to see to what extent it's actually had very real effects is, is something that I think, uh, could make for a fascinating read or, or another podcast probably mm -hmm. yeah i'd be keen to explore that and, and i suppose it's it's thinking about the question of what the effect of the sports diplomacy is uh i think it's it's apt that we spoke a moment ago uh about playing conditions in in abidjan you're talking about the floods that have uh rocked the ivory coast recently and how playing conditions were optimal because the pitches are drenched in water and footballers are kind of slipping and, and sloshing around. I mean, you know, one can't forget and ignore that Morocco recently suffered a, a great um, environmental yeah. catastrophe. And I mean, Libya as well. And I mean, and all of these yeah. natural disasters, so-called natural disasters uh, are partly and perhaps significantly the effect of, of, human responsible climate change so you know what where what place does the the grand sporting tournament have in an era where the likelihood that you know you're going to be the recipients of of an awful environmental catastrophe yeah. height and, you know how do you ensure against that disrupting your tournament you can't um and how are sort of footballing federations thinking about this if at all you're asking all the right questions honestly and, and even in algeria we've had crazy forest fires year after year after year and that's obviously very much a direct effect of climate change i mean in morocco i mean that's an earthquake i don't know how much climate change has to do with that or not these things can happen but uh, you're very right like at what point with the increasing temperature uh you know 
it's 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 crazy when you see like the even the desertification in that region and up north because the Sahara Desert is I think has grown ten percent over the last century if I'm not mistaken and and it yeah, just keeps exactly. growing 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 and it just it's barren and and they're trying to build sometimes you know green walls with vegetation to the south of it and now even to the north of it but at a certain point <laughs> maybe it's not in in the next 10 years maybe it's not in the next 15 years but at a certain point these natural catastrophes are going to be affecting these structures that you're building right now these stadiums and these you know the all it might be all for naught 10 15 years down the line if we don't really seriously start thinking about how climate change is affecting the region so but i, I really don't think these sporting federations are thinking about that at the moment i i, I just don't <laughs> yeah but i mean I, I, that's the one you know, on the one hand, these sporting agencies are incredibly complacent. They're not thinking about it. But on the other hand, you know, citizens themselves are, are deeply affected by all of these changes. And in many of these countries, given the structure of government, which tends to be, you know, highly neoliberalized or repressive, there's very little democratic space to contest a lot of these issues. I'm wondering if, you know, already we're seeing football and sports becoming, at the top level, a uh, mechanism for diplomacy, a tool for foreign policy, but also at the grassroots level, it's becoming an arena, an arena for, for political contestation. Uh, football stadiums themselves are, are sites of, of chanting, political chanting and cross chanting and so on and so forth. And uh, I wonder if we're going to see that uh, to a greater extent um, at AFCON. And it feels almost like we we must, because if we think about the most recent World Cup uh, in Qatar, that was absolutely the case, primarily with a lot of Palestinian solidarity being disp on display. Um, and I wonder what we might see at AFCON next year. It, it, it'll honestly be fascinating because this is uh, an area of uh, research that I really take seriously and that I, I love to sort of pay attention to is what's being said in the football terraces. Because as you mentioned, in a lot of our societies, which are not necessarily uh, bastions of civil liberties, uh, the football stadium is the one place where you can have like a sort of open public forum and people can say what they want to say. And at a certain point, crowds can say what they want to say. And, and that can become very interesting sociopolitically. And so uh, very recently, I mean, last month, uh, you had two fascinating case studies of this. So, so following the, that tragic earthquake in Morocco that happened, uh, it wasn't necessarily political, but when they had the minute silence in a friendly match, Morocco and Burkina Faso in France, they all started reciting, uh, the, the crowd started reciting the Fatiha prayer, which is a, a Muslim prayer that you usually recite over the dead. That was a really touching moment. Uh, but at the same time, a fascinating, again, experience of, you know, so, especially sociology, like how crowds can come together and sort of, uh, tell you about what's happening back home. And then in Senegal, in some, it was much more explicitly political. They had the same minute silence for the earthquake in Morocco, but you had crowds screaming, libere Sanko, libere Sanko, uh, free Sanko. Uh, Osman Sanko is, for those that don't know, a, a political contestant to uh, the incumbent Macky Sall, and he's been uh, imprisoned uh, on some slightly very dubious uh, charges of cor corrupting the youth. Um, and thus ruled out of the, the upcoming 2024 presidential elections in February. So uh, you had crowds chanting democratic slogans to, to liberate, you know, a political contestant. I think that's absolutely fascinating. And so these are things that, you know, you can pay attention to and they happen from time to time. And I anticipate they very much, they very well could happen in, in the upcoming AFCON. They happened uh, when I was in Egypt, when you had um, crowds 
lighting their flashlights on their phones in the 22nd minute as a sign of uh, support to the, the Egyptian player Mohamed Abu Trika, who was uh, persecuted by the, the CC government for his ties to the Muslim Brotherhood organization. And they were just showing their support to him. That's, again, a very political thing to do. And, and the government can't do anything about it. You know, they can, they instituted very, very rigorous ID checks into entering the stadiums. They're making sure you don't have any explicit political signs. But when everybody comes together to, to manifest, you know, some kind of demonstration outwardly, there's nothing anybody can do. So something to definitely keep an eye on. Mm. I wonder if I want, it's, I, you know, I, I wasn't aware about these sophisticated ID checks that the government is mm. conducting. And I wonder if, if as we see the stadium become this highly politicized space, if it's going to evoke uh, stronger and stronger crackdown, because it does seem like, especially because states are investing so much in sports as this tool to varnish their image, that they're going to want to ensure that they control the terrain as, as much as possible. And, and it's it's kind of, yeah, I wonder, speculating what, what that might look like in, in the future. And, and if that's going to have a sort of counterintuitive effect of making the game itself uh, less fan-friendly, which if it becomes that way, people are going to turn away and then you can't use sports as this greenwashing tool as you originally hoped. This was, I think the biggest example of this is Egypt. So Egypt uh, had very, very organized supporters group called Ultras, um, especially at the two biggest clubs, Al Ahli and Zamalek. These are the two biggest clubs in Africa, really. And Al Ahli in particular is the biggest club in Egypt. And, and they had a group called Ultras Ahlawi, which during the Egyptian revolution in 2010, 2011, they were practically organizing protesters in Tahrir Square. And they, were, they took a very uh, adversarial uh, stance against the former Mubarak regime and then the military after Mohamed uh, um, Morsi was deposed in, in 2012. And because of their stances, many of them believe that the Port Said massacre in 2012 mm -hmm. was a direct result of them actually standing up to the Egyptian go government, that the Egyptian government paid thugs uh, in Port Said to run over there and they say they shut off the lights and they locked the doors and, and those thugs had you know knives and, and batons and they, they ended up killing those Al-Ahli supporters. And, and after 2012, what you saw was attendance caps, first of all, in Egypt and in Tunisia. Attendance caps that were that are often, really, they were maintained up until present time. And what these attendance caps do is they say, okay, we'll let, we'll let 15,000 supporters in, in, in stadiums that hold more, sometimes more than 100,000 supporters. And that's one way of controlling. And the other way was in 2019 when they had, you know, these, these checks where it, you basically had to give all of your personal information on an app and you had to use a QR code to scan to get into the stadium. And they sold it as a way that we can be more modern and we can make this, you know, a, a fan, actually a fan friendly experience. But many people saw right through that and they said, no, this is a way to control who's going to the stadium to see where they're going to sit and they can crack down on, on things after. So that's definitely been the case in Egypt and Tunisia, but it's, it's also everywhere else. And if you speak to an Egyptian supporter, really the, the, the fanatics, those ultras that were going to the stadium every day in 2010, 2011, they'll tell you that football in Egypt has become soulless, national mm -hmm. team and at a national team level and the club level, that if you get a full stadium these days, it's not the people that live and die for the club that are going to the stadium. You know, it's, it's yes, sometimes you'll get families, so, some 
sometimes you'll have a higher rate of women going to the stadium, which can be actually a very positive thing as well. But they'll, they'll price out the, the, the working class supporter as well. And, and you'll get a very sanitized version of a crowd that's going to the stadium. And, and the Egyptian government did this. Really, I think they copied the, the Thatcher playbook to sort of root out hooliganism in England and, and to, to create less political crowds, really. And they've done a very, very good job of doing it as well. Yeah. And you think this, do you think this has had a direct effect on the performance of the Egyptian national team, which over the last couple of years has, you know, left much to be desired on the pitch, especially when they're packed with star talents, um, not least of which being uh, Mo Salah? I think that's a very valid question to ask a lot of Egyptian supporters and players. Um, to be fair to Egypt, they qualified for the 2018 World Cup. And that was something that prior to the revolution, you know, they really struggled to qualify for World Cups, even though they were winning successive AFCONs. And also, yes, they haven't won an AFCON since, but they've made it to the final in 2021 and they made it to the final in 2017. And so they're not playing their attractive brand of football that they were, uh, you know, from 2006 to 2010. But they're playing like spirited football, defensive football, and it's it, they've actually had okay results with it. Um, but I think if you ask an Egyptian supporter, they're going to say it's not the same. That football lost something in 2012 that it's never really managed to regain in Egypt. Um, and funnily enough, the places where you can sort of see that flame sort of being rekindled is when they'll play a CAF Super Cup match. Uh, in the UAE or in Saudi Arabia and where they don't have those controls and those checks in place and the Al-Ahli supporters can travel or you'll have like a lot of Egyptians from the diaspora and they can congregate abroad and then you'll see them sort of recreate that atmosphere that you had, you know, uh, 10, 15 years ago. So it's, it's, that's a curious sort of paradox that, that you can sort of observe. Mm -hmm. It's interesting. You've, you've, you've prompted a, a another line of, of curiosity, just having mentioned this CAF Super Cup being played in, in the UAE, we've seen a lot of sort of CAF events happening in the Middle East. Do you think that's uh, a harbinger of, of something to come, a kind of gradual sort of, I don't know, amalgamation of African and particularly Middle Eastern football? Um, is, is there something in the wings there or, or these are just more accurately sporadic decisions taken by these footballing federations for primarily, I imagine, sort of moneyed interests? Um, or is there like a kind of uh, a growing sort of consolidation between football on the African continent and football in the Middle East, which, as we've been discussing throughout this, this conversation, um, have a lot of points of connection? Yeah, there, there actually is a lot of points of contention. A lot of people, uh, sorry, of connection. There's a, a lot of people usually equate that to the to North Africa, and fair enough. There's a lot of North African footballers that go play in the Middle East, even prior to this, you know, huge uh, campaign of of sports washing, as as MBS said. Fine, if you want to call it sports washing, it doesn't matter as long as we add to our GDP. <laughs> but uh, but even along the East African coast, you have a lot of you know uh, there was a very a lot of connections, you know, like uh, between, for example, Zanzibar and Oman, that, that a lot of people don't necessarily. Uh, think of immediately. But there's definitely something happening under the surface. We don't know what it is yet, but CAF signed a memorandum of, of understanding with Saudi Arabia a few years back. They also, two days ago, signed another memorandum of understanding uh, with the Qatari Federation. And it's very weird to see a confederation on a continent sign a memorandum of understanding with a singular individual uh, mm. FA in the middle. It doesn't, you know, like what's going on? It's led to a lot of speculation. Some people believe that 
Saudi Arabia wants to host the 2030 World Cup alongside Egypt and Greece and them giving money to CAF in the form of hosting their Super Cup matches for free in the form of perhaps TV deals coming up or just uh, development deals, giving them money and saying you can use it how you want in developmental goals. That perhaps might equate to African countries voting for the Saudi bid. But that one is not quite clear because Morocco are also hosting uh, or sorry, also really pining for that 2030 bid with Spain and Portugal. And Petrus Motsepe recently has said that uh, he wants Africa to vote in unity for the Moroccan bid. So that one is not quite clear. And Saudi Arabia haven't officially bid for 2030. But some people do believe that that's a tit for tat in saying, look, we're going to give you, we're going to help you monetarily. But we do expect your support when we do try to, um, you know, uh, host these global events. Um, but there's definitely something happening and it's, I don't suspect that it's quite innocent. <laughs> it's never the case with these footballing federations. It's yeah, man. <laughs> so maybe just by way of kind of wrapping up and, and, and coming again to, to Afghan next year, I mean, you know, what do you think is, is possibly the most exciting thing about this tournament? Is it going to be another Afghan, um, to, to watch and it's going to be kind of similar to 2021 or or are we seeing are we going to see a heightened level of of competition because it does seem like the talent across the board is 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 really kind of um is coming coming to the fore and and a lot of players are available and there's there's teams that are in the tournament that are going to be exciting to watch so what do you think this tournament might bring that will make it exciting well, well, strictly from an organizational standpoint, the fact that they don't have to deal with COVID this time around, hopefully, fingers crossed, they don't have to deal with COVID this time around is going to be, I think, a major upgrade from the last version where, again, we got off to a very slow and clunky start. That's one thing that I think is going to be a, a major, major improvement. Secondly, everybody feels like this one is wide open because of Morocco's performances at the World Cup. Uh, Senegal are the current champions, and, and they didn't have money at the World Cup, but they also had respectable results as well. Uh, you have the Ivory Coast on paper might be the strongest team, and they're hosting. Uh, Algeria have a brand new bunch of like they have they recruited seven or eight brand new players that are young and very talented. You have Egypt again that's been to two finals out of the last three that I think are coming back with the exact same squad, uh, and I think Mohamed Salah has really really. He really, really wants that AFCON title, you know. Um, he's really not seen up to the standard of like a Mohamed Abu Trika in Egypt simply because he hasn't won the AFCON. Yes, he got them to a World Cup, but for him to be considered, you know, he already is considered the best ever Egyptian player. But a lot of Egyptians tell me he's not the greatest. He's the best, but he's not the greatest. Until he gets mm -hmm. the AFCON, then he'll be the greatest. So many different storylines. You can go, honestly, Nigeria and their 10 world-class strikers. Can they finally do it again? So, so many, and, and one thing to keep an eye on is there are a lot of African coaches this time around. There's, there's a new blueprint on the continent that really we can credit to Ali Ussisi of Senegal, where African federations are not, you know, going to that same old tired European carousel of, you know, 70-year-old and 80-year-old French uh, coaches that are jumping from country to country and making 20,000 euros a month to, but instead what they're doing is they're going to former players, players like uh, Ali Ussisi was Senegal's captain. Jamal Belmadi was Algeria's captain. Uh, Mali have uh, Eric Sekoucheli, a former uh, Malian international. Guinea have Kaba Diawara, a former Guinea uh, coach. Uh, I, I hope South Africa are going to be next, maybe with Benedict McCarthy or maybe Rolani Mokwena from, from Sundowns. So many young local coaches that I think are talented, you know, uh, that I think are going to be worth watching. So, so many different storylines. But finally, from a personal level, what I'm most looking forward to is just seeing all my colleagues 
it's always like a big reunion, like hugging everybody, um, you know, discovering a new, I've been to the Ivory Coast before, but really spending a lot of time there, spending more than a month there. I think that's going to be uh, fascinating. And just like the AFCON is for me special because there are still so many human interest stories. It's not really about football. It's not about the, the Riyad Mahrez and Sadio Mane and, and Mohamed Salah and Pierre-Emerick Obama. Yes, they add to the tournament with their star quality. But for me, it's about like Burundi qualifying for the first time, like last time. And, and them, you know, what does that mean to their country? And, and Madagascar as well. And these players sometimes are playing in the fourth division uh, in some weird, you know, country, uh, uh, you know, not the grandest clubs. And maybe they have a second job. These, these stories still happen at the AFCON where they don't happen at the European Championships. And speaking to them and seeing, you know, what this means to them, what this means to their country, what this means to their families. That's for me, the most valuable part of AFCON. And the fact that it's not, you know, the sanitized corporate tournament yet is for me, what makes it so loved. And for me, that's what makes it so magical and what makes it different. And I think that's what a lot of people are really drawn to. Yeah, absolutely. I couldn't have said it better. It still, it still has that kind of festival ethos of a real festival mm. of, of football. Um, that, as you say, goes beyond the sanitary, corporatized, disconnected, lofty image. It feels like a real tournament that's played by people in human conditions. So um, I'm really looking forward to it as well. And um, just to say to our audience, look out for extensive coverage from Africa's country. <laughs> we won't say what just yet, uh, but best believe that we're gonna be covering this tournament from start to finish. Yes. And, and giving a, a full sweep and insight into the precise human interest stories that, that Maya has spoken about. Um, Maya, thank you for, for coming onto the podcast today. Thanks for having me on, Will. It's really been a pleasure. I've enjoyed it. Excellent. A, a reminder of who I've been talking to, Maher Mazahi, who is an Algerian football journalist based in Algiers. He's covered North African football extensively. His work's been published everywhere. The BBC, The Guardian, The Telegraph, ESPN Africa, Al Jazeera English, I mean it everywhere. He's a prolific man. And I won't say what exactly I'm going to try and be as secretive as possible, but you can look forward to seeing more of him on Africa as a country. So if you've enjoyed this conversation, do stay tuned because more is coming your way. And a reminder, you've been listening to the Africa as a Country podcast, which comes out regularly wherever you listen to your podcasts. And we also upload clips of conversations on YouTube. So to your audience, thank you very much for tuning in and we will catch you next time.